Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 527th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Neil Dahlstrom, Branded Properties and Heritage Manager at John Deere, who is going to talk to us about his book, Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. Joining us in the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. To begin with, we'd like to welcome you to the show, Neil. Thanks for having me. Um, we call this first segment, um, it's kind of Farouk Tanaran, and history is local, being that John Deere is back in our yard. Um, and we pretty much are starting a new season, and uh, it's great to have this as a first topic. So the goal of this part is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information of why you decided to write a book on the birth of modern agriculture? I must admit, who are these John Deere and Henry Ford guys? They're not very important in American or world history, are they? Yeah, they're kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it's just a it, bit. If you'd asked me 10 years ago if I was ever going to write a book remotely related to the history of the farm tractor, I would have said absolutely not. <laughs> um, but I, I got sucked into the story. Okay, so let's go with the story. It's, it's essentially the origin story of what we know as the farm tractor, which is a farm tractor that runs on gasoline or, or diesel. Um, in the early 20th century, it was gasoline or kerosene. Kerosene was less expensive. Okay. Um, but it's kind of this transition from the, the steam engine or the steam traction engine to affordable mechanical power, the transition from horse to mechanical power on the farm. So a point of clarity, and correct me if I'm wrong, John Deere, the creator of the company, was long deceased before the tractors came down the road. Is that correct? He was. He died in 1886. Correct. And John Deere, while starting off with plows and agriculture, were looking to buy a tractor company because, and John Deere has always been pretty adroit at this, if you can't produce it quickly, buy out who's good at it, and then take it from there. And if they bought out a company in Waterloo called, was it the Waterloo Boy Tractor? Or? The, the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company, which traces its origins to 1892, and the Freilich Tractor, which is considered the first successful gasoline tractor. All that meant is it went forwards and backwards. It didn't, and, and, and they couldn't sell them. <laughs> really? Okay. So, and when did John Deere buy these, the uh, company? It was in March of 1918. And, and one of the questions that's bothered me throughout my career, people would say, why was John Deere so late getting into the tractor business? And because I didn't know the answer, I would say something like, well, 1918 feels pretty early. Um, or uh, if I was in a mood, I would say, well, they were before those who came after them and after those who, became, who, who came before them. That answer fits this show so perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, the other side of that, I'm going to throw mine because I grew up on a farm. Uh, grew up with John Deere A's. Um, they always worked. Couldn't pull the hat off your head compared to modern times. But the whole thing is, too, is kind of we're going to jump a little bit to Henry Ford. Henry Ford said, uh, when I listened to people, all they wanted me to do was build a better horse. I knew the old farmers quite well. I mean, I my grandfather would tell me stories. If you had stellar horses, 
you were the top of the town, and he said a lot of farmers were hesitant to buy a tractor. It wasn't like something that people instantly went through. Uh, did you hear the same thing? Yeah, and it was a long transition. Uh, tractors didn't outnumber horses on American farms till 1953. Right. Um, and, and kind of one of the, the underlying uh, kind of competitions in this book is the horse lobby versus the, the, the tractor lobby. Um, you know, horse farmers would say things like, well, yeah, you can buy a, a tractor, but it's going to depreciate uh, as soon as as soon as you use it. But a horse can make more horses. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's this value proposition that they're kind of competing over. And from what my grandfather used to say and other old farmers who were young lads when this was all going down, um, the horse was a part of the family. I mean, it was something that was very, very close. And I've we've discussed this with Jay and friends before. It was a couple steps above a pet because your life depended on that horse, and there was a bonding there that, with my exception, probably except with milk cows, that there were no with other animals. And to go from there to machinery was a much larger jump than people really understand. Yeah, uh, fixing a, a tractor, operating a tractor, operating it in cold weather, like these are all learned skills. Uh, repair network, dealer network. There's no technicians to work on tractors because they're such a new technology. There's no infrastructure. There's not a gas station you can drive to necessarily to fuel up. So there's a, a lot that's kind of thrown into the bucket here when you just buy a tractor. It's a lot more than I'm going to buy a tractor. Right. And my grandfather, who started farming in uh, 46, quoted Oscar Wilde the first time he got behind a car. And he said, it was the easiest horse I ever rode because the car would tell you what to do. Uh, that was probably one of the first selling points with tractors because it was a person totally control over something that although horses and you know um, were amazing, you a lot of times you didn't get accomplished what you needed to get accomplished. Right, and it's this idea of well, a tractor can in theory operate twenty four hours a day. Um, mm -hmm. and you don't have to feed it, and you don't have to deal with illness and all these things. Of course, you deal with other issues with a with a tractor, especially in the early twentieth century. But this transition's tough. There was this great run of machines where they were trying to mimic the operation of a horse. They called them line steer or rain steer tractors that use leather reins or chains instead of a steering really? wheel to try to get people to feel comfortable with it. The motor cultivator was very similar. Um, so it wasn't just go from a horse to a tractor. They were trying to figure out how to kind of convince people to make that transition. That's great. Now... Where does Henry Ford fit in this? We focused on John Deere. Let's look at that other person that never did anything successful, Henry Ford. Uh, yeah, Henry Ford, kind of a big deal. Uh, kind of. Gr <laughs> grew up on the farm, yep. uh, you know, tinkerer, mechanically minded, saw a steam engine uh, at the age of 12. His lifelong ambition was to build a farm tractor. The, the automobile kind of got in his way uh, when the Model T took off after 1908. But that's really the start of the book. He sends a, a photograph and a letter to the Farm Implement News and says, I'm building a farm tractor. This is in November of 1908. Folks probably opened that issue and said, who's Henry Ford? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, without a doubt. Yeah, he had agriculture um, heritage of his past. Matter of fact, he grew up on the farm. And then didn't he have to... Uh, hitchhiked to Detroit and he became a tool, like a tool and die man or he started yeah. working in some foundry or factory where he got the, the skills to start producing parts and, and understanding all that stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he worked in a rail yard and did odd, odd jobs, started kind of the automobile idea, had several false starts. So he didn't start with the Model T. It took him six or seven yeah. years to get there. 
um, but he always came back to the farm tractor and he just had a very simple idea he, he said taking flesh and moving it to steel and that's all he wanted to do was more horsepower yeah definitely without a doubt so let's bring in um the mccormick industry which later becomes international harvester uh cy mccormick is also dead the founder of that company because he created a um, a mobile reaper he is gone so how does international get into the game of tractors yeah international harvester is formed in 1902 it's one of the five largest companies in yep. the united states at the time um, they're actually part of this story in the 19 teens and 20s is the government trying to break harvester up because they're so big they're more than 10 times the size of, of John Deere. But they've got 85% market share in the grain harvesting business, which is by far the most profitable part of the farm equipment business. And their goal is to build a full line. We want to build everything that you need to operate your farm. Okay. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about these uh, aspects of the tractor. So please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today is Neil Dahlstrom, Branded Properties and Heritage Manager at John Deere. And we're talking about his book, Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. Our history buffs for today's show are Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. Jay, why don't you start us off? Hey, Neil. Thanks, first of all, for being on the show. Happy to be here. Um, so my question is, we kind of skipped over what the agricultural environment was like and, and went straight into where the, the major companies came from. So can you backtrack a little bit and talk to us about what the American um, agricultural uh, economy is like sort of at this point where tractors first come along and um, and then a little bit about what tractors did to change that. It, you know, how did it change the economy? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, and when people use the phrase good old days, uh, to me, I think they're always talking about the 19th century. Um, this, I think we have this idyllic image of you know, small family farms, um, entirely horse operations, which that, that's pretty accurate. In the early 20th century, there's about 6 million farms in the United States. Most of them are probably 100 to 125 acres, but half or more of that's unimproved land, meaning it's timber. You're not actually farming it. So you're probably farming 50 to 60 acres. You're a sustenance farmer. You're growing enough for your family probably your your hired help but that's about it uh, so i think when we think about 
that period in agriculture, that's kind of, of what it looks like. But it's mostly going to be um, horse-pulled implements, plows, manure spreaders, wagons, um, other types of, of harvesting equipment, grain binder. But it's all horse-operated, so, so mechanically driven equipment. That kind of sets the stage for the early 20th century and this kind of mechanical revolution. I call it the birth of modern agriculture because it's now it's about horsepower and, and it's about it's about growing your operation and, and kind of transitioning from sustenance farming to, well, now I can feed more people. I can sell to other people. And that's really a change in the in the American farm. My father said the one thing that the modern tractor did, it took away the hired hand. Because one person could do so much more that you would either need horses or hired men to do, and it changed everything. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because I think often we we miss context. And and in this case, uh, in kind of the, the early days of the farm tractor, you have this transition from large to small, but you're in the midst of World War I. So there's a, a growing labor shortage, and there becomes a horse shortage. And yep. so you have these, these factors that just kind of pop up that, that help to accelerate the industry. Rick. Neil, I uh, have uh, I read the book, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, being uh, uh, from one of your competitive uh, industries, uh, uh, Caterpillar, uh, I really understood some of the corporate decision-making that had to have gone on over the years to finally make John Deere the success it is. But um, a question I, I do have is there is a tremendous loyalty uh, among John Deere machinery owners, any, any machine, uh, combine, harvester, tractor, all that. How did the early evolution of, of uh, Deere's uh, work to uh, capture the market uh, come about to uh, since 1918 to become uh, have such a loyal uh, following of customers. Yeah, that's a really um, complicated question, but I'm I'm glad you asked it. it, it it's a lot of factors. Um, in, in this book in particular, what what kind of struck me was focusing on these three companies and, and three very different approaches and perspectives. I know from the Deere perspective, um, if we use just the acquisition of the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company as an example, they bought the company in March of 1918 and made a decision um, not to begin selling it as a John Deere tractor until the following year, reason being Waterloo had dealer contracts in place already. And they said, we're going to honor those contracts. We're going to set up the appropriate repair network and service network. Uh, we're going to build an infrastructure first so that our customers um, are comfortable buying this new machine. So um, that was kind of a place to start. But at the end of the day, it's about a quality product, an affordable product, and a serviceable product. And, and I think for dear customers, that's what kind of started to set them apart um, in these early days. Um, if I may say, from the old farm hands I worked with, Deer did a much better job putting their dealerships in places that were much more accessible. Uh, not that International and Ford didn't, but the old farm hands told me is that uh, because they were able to get the parts, as you said, because farmers are fixing them themselves, they wanted to go get it, get one drive, get the parts, and go fix it. Um, 
the other dealerships, I'm not saying, um, when I was a kid, I can't hardly remember Ford dealership, and that's talking 60s and 70s. Internationals were there, but they always seemed to be more spread out. Is that a pattern? Was there, was that a correlation between the three? Yeah, it was. And Deere had an advantage in some ways because John Deere dealers and sales branches were John Deere. International Harvester had McCormick and Deering lines. So when they merged in 1902 to form IH, they had separate dealer channels. Who and, and their tractor line kind of evolved that way. You have a Titan line and a Mogul line, which is sold by McCormick or Deering. Um, and so that just made it more complicated. You were typically one or the other. You weren't necessarily an international harvester company or, or customer yet. Ford took a different approach, which was to push tractor sales onto automobile, automobile dealers who didn't want them. Okay. Jay. So I'm interested then, as time goes by, so we have this early sort of uh, genesis. How do things evolve in terms of competition? Um, are they actively, are these companies actively going after each other sort of the way we, it feels like we see from uh, modern, you know, soda where you, you actively, you know, why would you possibly take anybody else? Well, you know, why would you rather have a Ford tractor? You should obviously have a deer. Or are they marketing more, the uh, the quality of the machine, and then that the sort of follow up question to that is, what kind of innovations really seem to drive the the market as it evolved? I, I don't know that there was a lot of companies going at each other, at least publicly. Uh, there was an incredible amount of cooperation between the scenes. Again, another kind of area that drew my attention in the book of. Um, you know, Henry Ford didn't want to build implements, so he was partnering with, with a number of other companies. Deere was collaborating with International Harvester behind the scenes. So at least amongst the larger companies, there was a lot of cooperation. And so for advertising, there wasn't this kind of adversarial relationship. However, internally, they were having those discussions. Deere at one point said, our competition is the Fordson and the Titan from International Harvester, and that's what we're going after. Um, you what what you see a lot is companies designing around each other, meaning um, Deere wanted to sell a, a, a tractor that could pull a two-bottom plow versus a three-bottom plow. When they introduced the Model D in 1923, Deere targeted wheat country, whereas International Harvester uh, introduced the Farmall for corn. And, and so they had very different approaches, but at the same time, they were kind of steering clear of each other and, and some of their, their customers. All right. Um, back from my memory, I was always taught while well, growing up, and this is more obviously after World War II, but the machine that lifted itself above every other tractor was the Farmall M because it came along with horsepower. It was like almost 50 horse which was totally revolutionary because after World War II, they were working maybe 20 or 30. But the Farmall M, uh, the farmers in my, that the old farmers, many of them are gone, said that that is what it took it over the top because then you realize that this machine, a machine, could have so much power than was ever imagined before and all other companies kind of modeled itself after that. Would you agree with that or not? Yeah, yeah, I would. It's, you can just do a greater variety of jobs. Right. And, and, and that's what it's about. And that's what they were all kind of kind of battling for beginning in the mid to late 1920s and on. 
which it's all about can I do more with with one machine um, and and really if you can get them to buy that tractor now they're buying all the compatible implements for that tractor right and that's where you really start to distance yourself from the competition Rick Neil, was there uh, in the early years, particularly uh, uh, after World War II, was there much internal, um, I'm going to say conflict, but it's it's, uh, differing worldviews among the management, the senior management of Deere. Was there competition as to uh, which way they should go and how they should uh, uh, treat their market and their product development? going forward yeah post-world war ii i think it was an era the the next decade of deer trying to figure out who they were i i think there was almost a complacency of of we're number two in this business and, and so we're going to kind of follow along um you you see that in in product development which is we're just we're, we're just improving this product a little bit more you, you kind of go from the lettered series to the to, to the numbered series with the with the 20 and 30 series, even into the early 1950s. And I think where you see a change um, is 1953. Deere buys a, an, an IBM supercomputer and starts cataloging data from customers. So they work with a million customers, catalog data. That leads Charles Deere Wyman, our CEO, to go to Waterloo and challenge in, engineers to redesign the entire product line. He says the only thing you need to keep is green and yellow paint. That was kind of a dropping <laughs> of the gauntlet of, okay, we're not number two anymore. What do we have to do to, to create what's next? Ultimately, that becomes what we know as a new generation of power, which was introduced in 1960. Okay, which of these uh, companies was the first to have diesel then? I want to say that's Alice Chalmers, actually. Really? Yeah, Okay. Yeah, if I recall. Out of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Right. Or Racine. They're out of Racine, right. Wisconsin. Yes. Right, yeah, it's a very... I mean, I think in, in, in the, in the mid-1920s, there's about 166 companies building tractors. Right. Um, and then just before the Great Depression, you see this era of mergers and consolidation. So essentially, there's about seven what they called a full-line company left. And so you see a lot of these companies um, start, start, to, start to merge. So there's basically seven full-line companies left. Okay. Jay. So I'm interested at this early point how did the technology or how did these companies expand into Europe and when did that happen? Because in today's world, we're used to international competition and there are, there are companies scattered all over everywhere. And, and um, not only are there you know, American companies in Europe, but there are European companies in America. And, and I'm assuming that's not true, but it has to happen at some point. Is there a precursor of that? sort of globalization that happens here earlier, or is that really a product of something much later? It, it certainly existed during this time. Um, Deer was selling in Argentina and, and different parts of the world in the late 19th and early 20th century, it actually started its export department out of New York City in 1904, um, and then brought it to Moline in 1912 as kind of the export headquarters. Prior to World War One. Almost half of international harvester sales were outside of North America. They they had factories in France and Russia. Um, Deer sent representatives in, I think, about 1908 to 1909 on a trip to Japan and Korea. I don't think they went to China. They went to Russia. 
Um, George Mixter, who was the superintendent of factories in 1912, went to Russia and said, this is where we have to build factories. It's the most important agricultural market in the world. Uh, but I recommend we don't do it because of political instability. Well, World War I comes along and International Harvester learns that. Uh, their, their factories are all taken over. Um, they lose factories in Germany. Um, so they were hit pretty hard by the war. But it's not really until we get into the mid-20th century that we start to see um, that infrastructure rebuild outside of North America. Okay. We've got three minutes left. Rick, what's the question? Uh, just uh, just a procedural question. Neil, uh, what was the hardest part of finishing this book? It, it was It's extraordinarily comprehensive, and I was just wondering, you really had to have labored to, to put this book together. What was the number one thing that was the hardest? Well, there were two things that were the hardest. Uh, one was, in my final edit, I cut about 100 pages. And, 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 and that was painful because uh, it was a lot of good information, but it didn't really drive the story. And I think it made it much harder to read. So that was tough. Uh, the second was where to stop. And um, <laughs> yes. because it could go on. And that was the first comments I heard was, well, why didn't you include this and this? And I said, well, it would be a 1500 page book and you'd never pick it up or read it. Um, so that was tough. But I also knew what I was getting into if I started the next era, which was Great Depression, World War Two. Um, which is an entirely different set of circumstances, and and kind of kind of needed a, a separate uh, separate look. Okay, uh, being that all three of us happen to have written masters and thesis, so we feel your pain of the cutting yeah. and editing. Um, who edited, if I may ask? Because uh, my prof, our profs, used to say when they would slice it with their red ink, say, "This is ink, not blood." So, as <laughs> you take it personally, who was your editor? Yeah, I, I actually had six different editors with, with my publisher, um, Matt Holt Books. And, and I'm often asked, well, why didn't you self-publish? And I said, because I desperately need editors. Oh, <laughs> amen to that, without a doubt. All right, so it is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. Neil, why do you think knowing about the birth of modern agriculture is relevant in today's world? I think, I think agriculture is just in our DNA. There's a greater separation than ever of where our food comes from. Um, I think, as I said, context is important, but at the end of the day, knowing how we eat, why we eat, and knowing about the producers that put food on our table is important, and I just like to keep that forefront in people's minds. Jay? You know, I, I think you can't understand, we're, we live in such a technological world, and, and we take for granted the fact that, that that technology has always been there, and it has no history, it just popped up conveniently for us to take advantage of. So I think the idea that that you need to know where the technology came from, what the struggles were, I think that's really important because as we continue to develop technology, you can learn from those experiences, not just from a business sense, but from a societal sense too, in terms of what am I going to encourage, what am I going to discourage, so forth and so on. So I think that perspective is really helpful. Rick, 30 seconds. Uh, just uh, coming from the Caterpillar world and watching the evolution of their machinery, it was a delight to see the uh, similar pattern and similar angst and uh, joy that, that the deer people went through to develop their product line. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. 
You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 527th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker, our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Neil Dahlstrom, Branded Properties and Heritage Manager at John Deere, who talked with us about his book, Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. The history bus for today's show were Jay Swords and Rick Sweets. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views of this expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners that, to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>